Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the new book Landscape Painting Now, From Pop Abstraction to New Romanticism. My guests are author Barry Schwabsky and artist Shara Hughes. Landscape Painting Now looks at how painters from all over the world are addressing landscape in their work. It features more than 80 artists and over 400 artworks. It's one of those books that you're sure to see in painters' studios for years to come. Amazon offers it for $43. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Artists included in the book who have previously been on the Modern Art Notes podcast include Francis Elise, Inka Essenhai, Daniel Heidkamp, Barkley Hendricks, Julie Mertu, Sylvia Plymac-Mangold, and Wayne Tebow. We'll have a link to all of those programs on manpodcast.com. The book was edited by Todd Bradway, features texts by Susan A. Vanskoy, Robert R. Shane, and Louis Sorensen, and primary text by Barry Schwabsky, the art critic for The Nation and the co-editor of International Reviews for Art Forum, a New York art magazine. We'll have Shara Hughes on the program in a moment, but first, Barry Schwabsky, after the break. Special announcement. The Modern Art Notes podcast is returning to the road for a live audience taping with Sheila Hicks at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. On May 11th, the Nasher opens a new site-specific exhibition of Hicks's work. The show will be in both the garden and the lower level of the Nasher. For the outdoor work, Hicks will play with the linear man-made grid of the Nasher garden by installing durable, color-fast, pigmented fiber along the garden's walking paths, walls, and seating areas. In the lower level gallery, she will install new textile sculptures that will invite viewers to consider the relationships between outside and inside, high art and craft, and more. A live audience taping with Sheila Hicks at 11 a.m. on May 11th at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Hope to see you there. From the Buddhas of Bamiyan to the temples of Palmyra, why is the world's cultural heritage being erased? On April 30th, Getty President James Cuno and author Terence Ward explore answers to this question and offer ideas about how to stop the continuing destruction. Get tickets and learn more about this free talk at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Barry Schwabsky, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Why was a project about landscape painting, and specifically a book about landscape painting, something that attracted your interest? Well, you know, it's, uh, I have to say that the idea for the book did not come from me. It came from Todd Bradway, who's the book's editor. And he approached me about writing it. And I immediately knew that it was something worth doing because, you know, I think that painting today has taken on, you know, a quite encompassing historical viewpoint. In other words, contemporary painters, unlike maybe some of those in the 60s and 70s, are not trying to start from scratch, to start from zero. They're, they're starting from the idea that lots and lots of painting already exists and that the only way you're going to get to what is contemporary and what for each practitioner is personal to them. The only way to get to that is by going through an awareness of this fact of being situated in a long history. And and so one of the things that quite a number of painters have looked at has been this whole history of landscape as a subject for painting. One of the things I really liked about the book is that it, it very much lives in the present. It's not 
an argument about how the 17th or the 18th or the 19th century and, and various national landscape traditions have informed the present. It's about the present. And I'm guessing that was a pretty conscious choice. The, the choice of the art to reproduce and the artist to focus on was meant to really look at the 21st century, you know, the last 15 or 20 years at the most. In terms of my introduction, I felt like I had to give some kind of account of, well, how did we get to this point and what's some of the background historically for it, but with, with an emphasis on how modernist uh, approaches to, to landscape painting, which in you know, most accounts of modernism are fairly peripheral, became important uh, as background for, for new landscape painters today. As you came to think about the artists in the book, did you see interesting, useful, meaningful differences between how American artists were addressing landscape vis-a-vis how artists from other countries were addressing landscape? No. I mean, that's that's not what was most striking to me. And, of course, you'll have noticed that in organizing the book into categories, which are not which are not categories of types of artists or types of paintings, but more angles at which uh, different paintings can be looked at. And as I point out in the book, many of the artists who are almost arbitrarily placed in the book into one of the categories could easily have been in the other. Anyway, those categories, as, as you'll have noticed, are not particularly bound by nationality. You know, I mean, if you look like the last one, Complicated Vistas, I mean, it has, you know, painters from the U.S., China, Belgium, uh, a Mexican living in the U.S., uh, Romania, and so on. So, yeah, I I just, I think that that the affinities uh, between artists that struck me anyway seem to organize themselves across national boundaries. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting because so much of the way historians talk about landscape painting, especially in the U.S., is within nationalist traditions. I mean, American landscape painting of the 19th century certainly was informed by Claude and Salvatore Rosa, especially, and, and Constable. But but once it starts here, the conversation tends to be about here. And in this book... Which is strange to me because to me, actually, American landscape painting of the 19th century is a lot of it very German. And in its origins and sources... So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny that, that U.S. art history has been so kind of self-absorbed in a certain way. Yeah, no, I, I co-sign. You mentioned the six sections of the book. In a moment, we'll, 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 we'll go through some of them, but let me just read them off so, so readers have some ground or listeners have some grounding. They are realism and beyond, post-pop landscapes, new romanticism, constructed realities, abstracted topographies, and as you mentioned, complicated vistas. Two things I want to hit before we get into those sections. One, you write that that you find painters are using landscape as a metaphor for painting itself. Could you give us a couple of examples of, of how you see that happening? Well, it's, it's a little bit hard to do that without having a, a painting in front of us to, to look at and point out. But, you know, I think that in, in dealing with space, the location of things with relationships of an image to time painters are always you know they're they're translating an image into 
specifically painting terms and yeah i mean i think they they it's 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 not even necessarily something that's so specific to landscape and this is a thing that i've been talking about oh you know at least ever since the introduction to the first vitamin p book in uh, i guess that was 2001 that contemporary painters are constantly painting allegories of painting and that they paint things in the world in order to talk about painting. And yet at the same time, they also paint about painting in order to talk about the world that they're in. So it's a, it's a kind of reciprocal metaphorization of whatever the, uh, whatever the ostensible subject is. Yeah, I, I'll throw in an example. A great one is Wayne Thiebaud's Reservoir and Orchard from 2001, which is Thiebaud painting one of those manufactured Central Valley, California landscapes. But what it also is, is a Craig Kaufman sculpture. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you're right. Or or, or, the, or the Cynthia Danio and, and her kind of bringing seriality to painting in a way, in a way that references photography, but also vernacular photography, and that uses painting to address things other artists and other historians in, in terms of vernacular photography have been interested in for, for a couple of decades now. Yeah, that Thibaut Kaufman. I, I'm not sure I'd seen that painting before, which I feel bad about. But when I turn to that page of the book, I so, so what, what Thibaut does in that painting is the, the top of this body of water in the middle of the painting is a, is a pinkish high tone Kaufman color. And at the bottom of the body of, of water, the water is white, which, of course, is, is what made Thibaut famous in the early 60s. And so over the course of this body of water, he goes from Kaufman to himself. And, <laughs> and I love it. You know, and just, uh, you know, after you were asking that, I started, uh-oh, you know, in a sort of panic, flipping through the book. And I immediately opened to the, the pages for George Shaw, the British painter. And, you know, those are really good examples. One is called The Painted Wall. And so, you know, it's really about this painted rectilinear uh, mark on on a wall, or the folk revival is uh, another painting where, again, there's on a wall, there's uh, a kind of target form painted in yellow. I mean, he's he's painting places where things are painted and where almost minimalist geometrical forms are are part of the the environment and then in a kind of witty way making the kind of townscape the sort of framework for that we'll have an image of that painting on on manpodcast.com i mean the other couple of really funny things about that painting is it's it's kind of council housing style row houses block our view of what is what Shaw suggests is a pretty great sunset <laughs> classic subject of landscape art that he then obliterates. <laughs> and then in the foreground, you have the target, which references John's and in front of the target, you have one of these kind of leaky white splotches that Twombly paints and that Rauschenberg includes in his paintings as references to, to Twombly. So it's all kind of layered on like literally on top of each other. <laughs> and even though it's layered, it's, it's, it's quite modernistically flat as a, painting right right down to the houses which are flats i mean it's full of these yeah it's a, it's a it's a pretty awesome thing you know one of the other things that really jumped out of me about i think not just the selections but i think that's also kind of true to the moment is how many 
painters of landscape in the last decade or two are interested in fauvism and in the bright high tone colors of fauvism, maybe less than some of the other parts of fauvism. One, did you find yourself noticing that too? And secondly, any guess as to why so many painters are playing in that sandbox? Yeah, it's noticeable. Although, again, I want to say that they're, you know, immediately that that's counterbalanced. There's probably just as many like Shaw or like uh, Julian Carnegie, you know, some of the others, Vincent Desiderio or whoever, you know, who are working with a quite a somber palette, actually. So, but I, somehow it seems to me that the ones that you call Fauvist, and I take your point that the, the kind of bright color definitely comes from Fauvism, but to me, they're actually, in a lot of ways, more, they are more the ones who, who more overtly are, are acknowledging abstraction in general and the kind of uh, artificiality of color that, uh, you know, certain forms of abstraction as well as of pop art seem to allow for. Well, let's jump into pop art. Pop art, post-pop landscapes is one of the, the six sections of the book. How do you see pop having influenced um, or informed recent landscape painting? And do you have maybe a favorite example or two? There, there are a lot of artists whose work I love in that section, you know, from Alex Katz, who among the sort of senior painters of our time is really kind of my hero to, you know, younger ones like Matthew Wong or Makiko Kudo or uh, Jonas Wood. I mean, I think there's a kind of these artists take different things maybe from pop, but but I think that there's a sort of sense of cool and clarity that some of them get in terms of how to encompass the things of everyday life in a society that's ruled by kind of commercial culture without being thrown for a loop by it, if that makes sense. It's uh, it's a kind of art that almost, it's not unromantic, but it resists its own romanticism as opposed to, you know, some of the others that kind of throw themselves into that. It also, you know, I think there are also some painters here who are romantic and resist the commercial and kind of poke history in the eye in, in some of how they show landscape. I'm thinking of Daniel Heidkamp's Memory Dune, which is kind of a high-key, high-colored painting of, of sand dunes, but in a way that very, very much recalls, and I think probably intentionally recalls, much 19th century French painting of the northwestern French coast and the White Cliffs, actually 20th century French painting too, Matisse, of, of kind of, you know, the White Cliffs of Etretat and, and such. And in Hyde Camp, it's all the brightest color he can make it be. So instead of white, it's, it's, it's bam. And it's not only the color, though, it's also the sort of physicality of the paint. You know, uh, I mean, I haven't seen the painting in, in person, but even in the in the reproduction, some of the paint just seems so kind of physically put down on the surface. It's like he really wants to to sort of hit you with with the paint and the color. Yeah, the, the, and, and he physically 
scratches into the paint with you know the back of a paintbrush or something like that just as you know or plenty of 20th century painters Matisse perhaps most famously did another section of the book is called new romanticism and the introduction to the section was particularly interesting to me you source the idea if it or, or at least the phrase in two european landscape shows landscape art shows of the aughts one of which well they were landscape shows they were broader shows but i think in both cases landscape entered into them and, and and you quote kind of the organizing idea of one of them as saying quote today's romanticism is a meta romanticism working with postmodernist means which jumped out at me because i'm not smart enough to understand it but also because it suggests that europe really was or is interested in romanticism in the aughts and and I wonder why. Well, you know, both both of those shows were not simply European, but in Germany, the ideal world's new romanticism and contemporary art was uh, at the Scheren Kunsthalle in Frankfurt. And then the other one, romantic conceptualism, was at the Kunsthalle of Nuremberg. And I think that in Germany, that's very much seen as, you know, an essential part of their cultural history for better and for worse. And so in that sense, it's not so, it's not so surprising to me that there was a particular attentiveness to it there. How does romanticism make its way into, how does it look in some of the paintings in that section of the book? How are artists adapting it? There, there are different ways. I mean, there are people like Vern Dawson who, in a very deliberate way, draws on folklore. And, you know, of course, the, uh, the exploration and uh, revival of folklore was in itself a project of romanticism. There are artists whose work has a more kind of purely stylistic relation to, to kinds of painting that we, call, we think of as romantic, although... Or, or even to the sort of romantic side of modernism. You know, there are a lot of painters today who are very, very interested in Charles Birchfield, right? Who we're sort of brought up on as a kind of classic American modernist, but it's a very particular kind of modernism that was very close to sort of mystical feelings about landscape and being in the world that have much older, uh, much older sources. Uh, I really enjoyed the constructed reality section, which is full of paintings that are playing with the idea that paintings are paintings. They're tweaking it, they're winking at it, and they're doing it within landscapes. What about making paintings of? Th what what about constructing paintings from sort of landscapes is useful to to, to painters now? You know, with maybe one or two examples from the section. You know, a, a, a painting, I think most painters recognize just is a construction. It's an artifice. And it's, but it's an artifice that wants to convince you of its, that there's something that came naturally about it, you know. So I think the idea of starting with an idea of landscape means something about well, how to start from an idea of the whole space that you haven't 
constructed yet, but that you're going to construct and what the pieces are that can fit in to that and how free you can be with, with having a multitude of seemingly irreconcilable elements as long as you have a concept of how the totality is going to, to hang together. Yeah, you get that in Will Cotton. You get that in, you know, who's, who's playing with confectionaries. And you get it in Inca Essenhai, who is doing something that we can read and recognize as a landscape. But the kind of the more time the eye spends on it, the less, you know, landscape provides entree. But maybe the more time the eye spends there, the more the brain wanders away from from that point of origin. I mean, you get, I think, really extreme examples of that in some of uh, Adrian Genny's paintings, the Romanian painter, where, yeah, I mean, kind of marks and what the marks are supposedly depicting are constantly sort of switching places where even sort of foreground and background seem really kind of unable to be pinned down. And yet the very idea that it shows usually a figure in a, in a landscape gives you that minimal amount of coherence that allows you to kind of mentally reconstruct the whole thing. I think that when a lot of us think of, say, Clifford Still or, or de Kooning, we think of uh, mid-century American abex as often abstracting away from landscape. Still, Still himself was so worried that people would think he was abstracting away from landscape instead of being, air quotes, pure, that he worked very hard to hide that as a source, even as he quietly told some people he later threatened that driving across the canyon lands of the American West was, was really important to the work. So in the section of this book, this is all a long way of saying that in the section of this book, the section titled Abstracted Topographies, we still see artists interested in abstracting away from a place, often a very specific place. Why do you think painters like to do that? Why do you think that's a useful and interesting thing to painters? Well, it's, it's, it's always useful to start from something, after all. You know, there are people for, who, from, for whom the interesting way to start is to start from other paintings but i think for many others what's interesting is that they have striking experiences of things in the world that surround them and there are very interesting and kind of curious problems that come from how in the world do you communicate those through the language of painting to 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 other people i just think that that is you know a challenge that that a lot of artists are are motivated by the the last section of the book is complicated vistas and is full of painters who are happily eagerly using references to centuries of landscape painting but also fighting against them you know creating hyper real unreal if you will alexis rockman scenes or uh, are kind of using landscape as an excuse to play with paint and photography luke toyman's is the I, and so complicated vista is also the last section in, in the book and i 
came to wonder if you and Todd Bradway were kind of using it as a way of reminding us that even as artists maybe move away from landscape, that landscape is still fundamental and informs practice. You know, I think the reason that I wanted that to be the final section in a way was that it was maybe the most open-ended of them and therefore kind of allowed for an implicit opening out into all the other all the other things uh, that could that we could have used as ways to to kind of look at landscape painting that in a way this is sort of the the one that allowed for the the most well to borrow the you know kind of uh, venturian scott brown famous phrase complexity and contradiction so yeah i mean that seemed to be the 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 category that would sort of fit in the most things and and things that you wouldn't necessarily have thought to see in the same section i mean uh, Alexis Rockman and Luke Toymans don't really immediately suggest themselves as as painters with a lot of things in common, but I I think it makes sense within within the construction of 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 the section. No, but they do make sense when you consider them in the context of of one of the Francis Elises in the book, an untitled 2011-12 painting that's five by seven inches. So that pointedly resists the convention of landscape painting being big, a painting of an urban landscape, which also resists the convention of the thing going back hundreds of years. And then he interrupts the painting with, I don't quite know what you call it, I guess a TV test pattern right in the middle. Well, it's a kind of color bar thing. I don't, it didn't remind me of TV. It reminded me more of those kind of things that uh, photographers use. But yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, but what it does is it reminds you that he's making a painting of a thing, not a painting of a landscape, and that the thing happens to be a landscape. You know, it's these these steps from, all while referring to the original thing, and it's a section that, that's, that's full of it. No, I shouldn't say full of it, <laughs> that is rich with it. <laughs> Barry Schwabsky, thanks so very much. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Explore what it means to be Southern in Sally Mann, A Thousand Crossings, the first major retrospective of this celebrated American photographer, on view now at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. For more than 40 years, Mann has made hauntingly beautiful photographs that address overarching themes of existence. Featuring over 120 images, this exhibition shows how the American South emerges within Mann's work as a powerful and provocative force that continues to shape American identity and experience. On view through May 27th. Visit mfah.org slash m-a-n-n for more. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. The Pulitzer presents Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt, the first exhibition to examine specific periods in the rich history of Egypt when clashes between competing leaders, religions, and ideologies resulted in damage to and destruction of sacred and political images. Focusing on the legacies of pharaohs Hathshepsut and Akhenaten, as well as the destruction of objects in late antiquity, the exhibition will pair damaged works, from fragmented heads to altered inscriptions, with undamaged examples. With nearly 40 masterpieces on loan from the renowned collection of the Brooklyn Museum, 
Striking Power is on view from March 22nd through August 11th, 2019. Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt is organized in collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Shara Hughes, a New York-based painter. Her paintings address both landscape and elements of landscape, assembled in sometimes fantastical ways, often with bright, fauve colors. She's been included in group exhibitions at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, Mass Mocha, and at the Katona New York Art Museum. Next year, La Consortium in Dijon, France, will host a solo show of her work. Shara Hughes, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. How do you think of your relationship to landscape? And I'm phrasing the question that way because while there are lots of references to landscape in your paintings and to things we recognize as being standards of both European and American landscape, you often dissolve your references and stitch and imagine those references into non-identifiable landscapes. So how do you think of your relationship to the thing? Well, I, I actually don't even... I mean, I, I categorize them as landscape paintings because it's it's almost just like an easy way to quickly say what I do, which kind of parallels the reason why I make the landscape paintings, because I'm really talking about painting. The landscape is really just like the vehicle to access a viewer. So you're immediately understanding what what you're seeing, what you're experiencing as a as a painting. Yes, they're landscapes, but they're they're paintings. They're about painting and art history, and so the relationship to landscape is is almost just for access. Like I'm not even I don't look at landscapes when I'm making the landscapes paintings. They're really totally all made up on the spot and made out of working from an abstract place before I start figuring out what kind of space this is. Good example of that are a couple of your paintings that feature waterfalls. One, for example, is Falls from 2017. Another is Cascade from 2016. To my eye, they're they're very intentionally not specific waterfalls, but that they're paintings in which you're nodding as an interviewer says, are you interested in the Niagara or Nevada or Bridal Veil Fall in American art history? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I kind of use like the one called Cascade. I use that almost as like, a field of abstract, a field of be of something up close to you that makes it feel almost completely like an abstract painting. It's just sort of like there's these little kind of areas of access to, okay, that's the sky. So this must be something else up front. I, let me let me let me interrupt for just a quick second because it's a really specific sky. It's a Georgia O'Keeffe at the Art Institute of Chicago sky. Sure, <laughs> I don't think I was like specifically referencing that, but that that happens all the time when somebody says, "Well, this is like obviously a Rousseau plant." I'm like, "Great!" Or sometimes I'm like, "Yeah, I was really looking at Rousseau," but I like that being able to have the flexibility within myself is not so attached to them in a way that I give myself and the viewer flexibility to be able to go in and out of, of that kind of point of reference. So I, I haven't even heard that yet for that, for that painting, but I'm looking at it now on my screen too. And I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. 
I could have, you could say Milton Avery or anyone else for that kind of sky too. It's so, it's so kind of like dumbed down in a, in a way compared to the rest of the painting. It's so like direct and. That's why I thought of Georgia. It, it's very, it, it, it's a near abstraction that is referencing that we know the thing. Right, right. And in that painting, the rest of it is so complicated and active. So to have that like one strip of just like blue sky, white clouds kind of gives you that like rest because you're like, okay, just give me a break here. Okay, I can see the sky. I'll sit with that for a minute. Now I go back into the like crazy aggressive painting. <laughs> you mentioned in responding to my first question that for you, landscape is kind of an opportunity to paint with paint, to play with paint, to do painty things. And in, in the book, Landscape Painting Now, I think there are two paintings that are a really good example of that. One is Tipsy from 2016, which is a painting that features, I don't know, we'll call it a palm tree, even though it's not really a palm tree, or maybe it is really a palm tree. But the, the, the trunk of the tree is at, is at the far right, and the leaves curl around and fill much of the rest of the top three quarters of the painting. So there's kind of this Clodian or, or Salvatore Rosen reference to the construction of landscape painting in the, the 17th or 18th centuries. And then there's a painting titled Spins from Swiss from 2017, in which you paint water, as you described it a moment ago, just as flat blue. It's there. It's a reference to water. Do you think of specific features or objects in a landscape and wanting to represent them? Or do you think of things you want to do with a color or your brush or your wrist and find excuses to do it, find things to build out of it? I think it's both, but more the second. It's more like, okay, how can I, I really want to do something that is almost like swirling around the entire surface. What would that be? What would that be a cave? Would it be this kind of tree-like form that's in tipsy? Would it be completely abstract that, you know, that place is where I can play around with paint and then I'll give you sort of like a suggestion of something somewhere else that makes it feel like maybe you're in a bush or something. So it's it's usually all, it's all based on kind of like, how do I want to put a painting together? And then what does that look like? How can I make it something that's nameable or placeable to a viewer? One of the things that seems to me you have the most fun painting is water. I think that's true of a lot of painters. Sometimes it's just flat blue. Sometimes in a painting like Gusto from 2018, it's very cream cheese schmeary, where you kind of, you know, are mixing different colors and then kind of almost knifing it on or maybe actually knifing it on. And in Gusto in 2018, it's not a river. I didn't mean to suggest that. It's it's like an ocean or a sea or a lake and there's a beachside you know, if we go back to the 19th century, you know, there's the famous Ruskin thing about how water is the hardest thing to paint. and No one had ever really done it right. But it seems like you have an enormous amount of fun painting water. Do you care any about any particular history of painting water or is it an opportunity? How, how do you approach painting water? Well, I, I always care about the history of painting anything, I guess. But I approach water in a way that gives you some kind of a grounding in a lot of ways because I feel like the painting can kind of get a little bit wild and to be able for the viewer to feel like, okay, water is low, water is on the ground, water keeps has a, always has sort of a flat surface, even though it changes, you know, relatively, but there's no, there's not really like 
something as as I guess vertical as a tree coming out of of the water until you get into waves and rain or something like that. But but generally, I use it as sort of like a grounding point, and also I really love doing different kinds of reflections in there, so you can. There's, is, there's an opportunity to play with light in a nice way as well. So I kind of feel like like that's the main, there's something that just feels so like, okay, I know where that is about water. It's, it's down, it's flat, it's horizon. Tell me why you like painting reflections. I like painting reflections because they change all the time and they make there's an opportunity to make shapes in them that is inventive in a lot of ways because they change and because especially on water, it's always moving. So there's something that's like unknown about it that, that feels like I can do whatever I want with it. I mean, I guess that's the same with all of the landscapes and nature in general, the way, the reason sort of also why I started doing the landscapes is because we'll never see the same thing twice. The time of day is constantly changing. Something is always growing or dying or or the weather is different. So there's something so flexible about the landscape that really is appealing to me just, just with being able to paint however and whatever I want. Let's talk a little bit about art history and, and how you've jumped off from it. The, the reference that screams out of your work for me, including your your earlier figurative work, is fauvism. Were you, are you particularly interested in, in fauvism? Sure. I mean, the, the invention of being able to, like, use color in so many different ways is, is super appealing to me. I love, I love being able to have, not really have limits with that, so... It, it makes it so that it doesn't feel like you're illustrating anything. You're not making a picture. It's sort of like at the end of the day, it's still a painting and you're, you're using the colors to, to create something that doesn't feel like you could see it every day. I think I can find specific Fovis notations in your work, colorful tree trunks to, to tree trunks that are, you know, very pointedly not the color they are the individually attenuated brush strokes Sometimes you present water, for example, as just a series of blue squiggles on a white ground. And then maybe the most obvious one is you make or let bright colors bump up against each other without any need for a transition. It's it's just bright next to bright because, hey, why not? Was there a point in your looking at painting or in your education where you found permission to do those things or did they enter more organically? I think it was more organically. I think that it, there's something about like being able to, like it feels kind of wild to, to let that kind of vibration happen. But in a lot of ways, it feels really specific to some anxiety or kind of mood that I am always feeling when I'm making the work. This kind of like need to, organize something chaotic or fix problems and so I think being able to like let that happen feels really natural for me. Are there specific fauve paintings that when I say fauve painting that 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 come to mind? 
I don't know. I don't know if there's any anyone specifically that I go back to all the time. Like, I, none of the, my palettes are ever planned. I don't even have any. Like, I a lot of it's straight out of the tube, or it's it's all it's all like in the moment. So, I feel like the minute I would start looking at somebody while I'm making paintings, it it kind of crushes my ideas. So I'm looking at people all the time, but it's rarely, it's not always like right before I start the painting. It's, it would be sort of like in the middle, I guess. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. But I still would bet, you know, dimes to dollars that you've spent a few days standing in front of the great Matisse early abstraction, Perry Winkles, um, also known as Moroccan Garden at MoMA, the 1912 painting. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. It's not that I'm like totally unaware. These people completely shaped, you know, my, my understanding and love of painting, you know, Matisse is always in my work. It's feel like he, it's almost impossible to get away from him, but it's, it's something that's always there. I just think that it's something that like, I almost have it so much a part of me that I don't need to keep looking at it because I just know it in my brain. I'm not like starting the painting thinking where, what kind of palette, yeah, would this come from? No, I totally get that, not to equivocate, but, you know, writers are the, the same way. And, and you know, uh, certainly for me, when I write a sentence and I reread it and think, oh, Joan Didion wrote that, I, I flee in horror while, while still hugging the thing near to me. So you mentioned a moment ago that you don't consciously build a specific landscape. And, I, you know, I think that's really obvious in the work. I think, you know, sometimes we'll see a series of, of brush strokes and kind of an almost abstract composition, you know, maybe in a painting like Crooked in your work, and then all of a sudden we'll find a little passage of like trees on an island that references a landscape even as the rest of the painting is, you know, sprinting away from being a landscape. But I think it's still possible to find references to standards in your work. And I'm wondering, I'm going to try and name a couple and, and, and see if you, you know, if we find something that's important. A, a great example is a painting called In Carving Out Fresh Options, which reminds me very much of paintings of Western American canyons like Thomas Moran's, for example. Is, are, are you thinking of a landscape in that painting? Are you thinking specifically of, you know, the canyon of the Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon? I feel, so that that's like the the best example for this conversation because... That painting I actually did have to do sketches for because it was going on a mural in downtown Boston that was 70 feet high. So they kind of needed to know where I was going with it to say yes. I should mention it's also a, a wall-mounted painting too, right? Yes, it is. It's a diptych actually. So it's it's two different sized canvases butted up next to each other. So that painting... I. I definitely feel like that one feels more like it could be in a specific place. So, and I, I wonder if that happened because I needed to have the sketches. I need to kind of like have something planned beforehand. So it just kind of went that way where I feel like it's harder to, to find that kind of specific, I don't know, kind of like place name, like being able to name it in a certain way with, with most of the other work I make. And so I, I wonder if it's just because I, I had to do some sketches for that one. But um, I wanted for I wanted that specific painting to be, because it's it's seen in 
the downtown Boston landscape as if there were buildings that you're looking through. So what was there before? What was there before the landscape, the, the city was there? What would reference sort of something like a building? And that was sort of like the plateau with a window through it. So that kind of made more sense to me. That's interesting because I think that was probably, uh, I, I'd seen your work before that, but that painting really jarred me awake. I mean, America's landscape tradition comes as much from New England as it does from New York. I mean, we think of Thomas Cole, but also Emerson. And one of the reasons I picked this painting to bring up is because there are two elements in it that I wanted to dig into a little more. One is what you just referenced, the kind of like you're looking through something, the peekaboo-ish thing, which pops up in your work a lot, you know, in a, in a painting like Split Ends from a couple of years, from, from 2016, that keyhole-ish thing, tech, technical painting term, is in Mirage from 2016. What about looking through something to, quote, see something beyond is uh, an interesting device or construction for you? So I think that there's a couple of things that makes it interesting for me. One, one is formally it tells the viewer where they stand before asking to be in the painting. You're behind something. You're looking around this tree. You're looking through this rock. You're peeping through sort of like a peephole from a bush perspective. So in one way, it's it's a way to get the viewer already actively feeling like they're in it or they can keep walking through. So I like that. I like that kind of tool, I guess. And then another reason is because that, of that phrase, um, it is just a painting. Paintings are the windows to the world. So it's kind of like sort of an obviously like thought about that where it's like here's another window and another window and another window where you can just kind of keep going but you're still very aware of the edges because it is something that I want at the end of the day for you to believe in it even though you know it's not real so the way that I'm painting it is is wrong but it's you believe it for some reason so like whether it's because there's a perspective element or it feels like a window and it, it, you, you know where the edge is. So there's like a, an obvious reference to like being so involved with it and then knowing that it's, that it's just a painting at the same time. There's also a passage in this painting that kind of gets me every time. I, I find that every time I've had this image on my computer, my eye goes to the same place. And it's in, it's, it's, uh, in the water, um, in the river on the lower left, there is a passage of dark blue, light blue, and whitish or white allowing brush strokes that reads, you know, where the river in the painting turns to the viewer's right very quickly. And it either reads as a waterfall or it reads as the painter running out of space in the lower left-hand corner and needing to, to fix it. <laughs> is this in like all the way lower left with the brown and the green? No, this is still in the water. No. Water. Oh, this is okay. Still in the water, and I wonder what that spot in the painting is for you. Is it a problem fixed? Is it wanting to reference a waterfall because it's so much in the American landscape tradition that you're referencing in this painting? I think it's both. Like I, I wanted it to feel like a waterfall, but I, I wasn't running. I don't think I was running out of room. I think I wanted it to feel like, like a few different areas of space, and almost sort of like like a blocky kind of way. So 
using the waterfall as sort of like a wall that goes like straight up and also having it have that kind of reference to the big rock formation that's like right next to it on all sides. So it's sort of like a functionality thing, but also I wanted to be able to have like that kind like more playfulness in the water right there also, like the little swirlies and then have it be kind of fast. And then, so you kind of know that there's, that there's a larger space of water in the very front, which makes you understand that like the depth of the space. So usually always in the paintings, like the way that I make them is by a series of basically what I, what I call problems or mistakes. So a lot of that stuff just does happen because of some natural way of how I'm constructing the painting is like, oh, well, this kind of mistake happened. How am I going to fix that? Okay, well, now now what I do next is to put this there. So they're, they're almost like, to me, a series of mistakes until it's finished. So that could be a result of, of both of those ideas, actually. It's a, it's a great little passage. We mentioned trees a moment ago, and I think some of the things you do with trees are really, really interesting. In a number of paintings, and for the sake of having a specific quotation or citing a specific quotation, let's use In Your Getting In Your Own Way from 2018, you foreground a tree, maybe a tree of life type thing. You, you foreground the trunk of the tree in a way, front and center, and it almost blocks out the rest of the painting. And it's a move you also use in a painting called, a similar move anyway, in a painting called Portrait as a Big-Haired Prophet from, from 2018. What about an individual tree rather than a tree within a much broader composition interests you or is worth doing? Formally, it's, it's something vertical in the space, but I also feel like they can become figure, figurative in a lot of ways. They can, like the Portrait as a Big-Haired Prophet felt sort of like, this tree in the very center holding up like the hair of the tree. And that felt almost like this one tree was kind of giving a speech or a lesson right in the front to these other smaller trees in the background. So that, let me, that, let me j- jump in just for a second. So the, 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 the tree appears to be leaning backwards slightly and it's most prominent. It's only visible branch exists kind of like a human arm. So, right, right. Exactly. And the title came last. So this painting just kind of happened how it did. And I actually think that this one was one that I struggled with in a lot of ways, kind of figuring out how it was going to end up coming together. But it just felt like this one central figure, the tree had the arm and it was holding up some kind of a weight, which felt like a big, like big mound of hair. But it felt really almost like silly and and important and strong and confident at the same time. So the title came, I kept thinking about it in that way. And then the title came out and I was like, oh, it's kind of funny to title it that. But it felt really specific for that painting for some reason. So yeah, the tree kind of comes in every now and then almost as like a stand-in for a figure, I think. So I like like that idea about it and, and actually... My new body of work is flower paintings, and they also kind of come in with like a figurative kind of presence. Flower paintings, question mark. Not a, there is not, I don't mean this, uh, you know, I mean this in the politest way. There is not, with the exception maybe of Heed, Martin Johnson Heed, there is not much of an American tradition of flower painting. 
not 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 that you can't mine other traditions. So why flowers? Because I've, I, I, I'm not done with the landscapes, but I feel like there's something about flower paintings that feels so also kind of unpopular and silly and like romantic and has a lot of like heavy weight, but also kind of like lightweight to it at the same time that I like. And I wanted to see what it would, what kind of, how do I make a flower painting? That felt really exciting and scary for me <laughs> to take it on. So, but I'm really, I, I, I like, I like where, where the body work went. So. I was just so surprised about flowers that it took me a second to figure out how to, how to provide entree. Um, I mean, like, you know, it doesn't have to be American, but I mean, Americans pretty explicitly rejected floral still lifes. Yeah. I mean, well, you also always think of flower paintings as still lifes and I'm not really using them in that way, but, uh, I like the, I like being able to say, oh, my next show is a flower painting show and people feeling kind of like a little bit disappointed. But when you see the work, it's very kind of like aggressive and powerful in a different way. That's not like, oh, flower paintings, you know? <laughs> and it, it's it, it's funny. I think in the context of art today, bad phrase, flowers are gendered, whereas in the hist in, across art history, they're very much not. It was men who painted them mostly. I mean, men painted most things, but, you know. There was still a very specific subject that men did. Suns, S-U-N, suns. You like painting them, and you like painting them so much that sometimes there are several of them in any given painting. Why? Why do, why do you like suns? What about them is uh, a fun painterly thing or a useful painterly thing? Well, it's a circle, <laughs> so there's that. And also it, it still gives you that reference of distance and and where am I and where where's the where's the top, where's the bottom, where's the, the exit point. And I like that also it can easily switch to being a moon. So like the time of day can flip. I mean, even in that spins, spins from Swiss one we were speaking about earlier, that painting, I feel like it's either like the sun going down or the sun going up, or maybe it's the moon, you know? So I, I like that it can be abstract in that way, but also really specific. I don't like to ask painters about specific paintings because it seems like a, a, a specific paintings by other artists because it can seem like too much of a stab or too much of a gotcha. But your painting Purgatory Chasm is is compositionally really, really, really close to um, a Wayne Thiebaud, um, his 1983 Road Through. And I wonder if there is a semi-direct or direct relationship. No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure I've seen it, but not I, when you mentioned it specifically, I did, the image hasn't popped up in my head. So no, it was not specific at all. I feel like that kind of image, this kind of like small crevice to another space beyond is something I'm always kind of looking for. It's almost like the ultimate idea for me to be able to have like most of the painting be abstract and playful and whatever I want. And then like a little sliver of reality, even though in that specific painting, none of it is reality, <laughs> realistic looking, but I like that. I, I feel like it's almost like the ideal space for me in some ways that kind of like everything all over with a little suggestion of 
escape. And and he's doing the exact same thing your painting does in that there are passages in the painting where he's he's allowing the paint to drip or encouraging the paint to drip and mixing colors that have no relationship to the landscape or any actual landscape. And he's just letting them be paint. He's including all of these references to painterliness. There's the same sliver of sky, same air quotes, sliver of sky at the top of the painting. It was, it, it's a strikingly similar interest in a thing. It's funny. I mean, I, I kind of love that, like for me, it's an escape and his is almost like that road is just blocking you from, I mean, I know that I, on the road you should be able to like travel on it, but it feels so like blocked off to me that it, I, I mean, I love what he's doing with it. I, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but it's great to see this painting. Yeah, I mean, I think what he's I think what he's doing is he's mashing up his San Francisco San Francisco cityscapes with Yosemite Falls. So if you think of the road as as Yosemite Falls, which of course has a great American art tradition, and of course in your painting, um, there's also a waterfall. Only it's really an excuse to tease the viewer with primary colors. Yes, there's another a painting that I made actually right before this one that had a very similar composition. It is called, oh yeah, it's called Chaos Chasm. And I made that painting actually for a show in San Francisco, which is kind of funny. And then I, I also had a show coming up in Rhode Island at the Newport Art Museum. And they have a, a place called Purgatory Chasm that I went to. And I had already made this painting called Chaos Chasm. And I was like, oh, my God, I just made this painting. And I stumbled. We, we went looking around on the landscape, just touring around because I had that show coming up. And I was like, oh, I wish I could have just used this one because it just happened. And now I'm seeing this in real life. And then I made the other one, Purgatory Chasm, right afterwards. So I, I had sort of that same idea. The Chaos Chasm one feels a little bit more... I don't know, wild or natural, but... Big Diebenkorn references in Chaos Chasm. I mean, you're turning trees into clubs and spades from the deck of cards, you know, which is a big, big Diebenkorn move. I guess I am. <laughs> no, it's great. It's so funny. I, 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 That's the thing about the, the paintings. It's like, of course, I'm looking at all these people. So whenever, whenever people reference as other artists, which they always do, whether it's like... I know it or not, it's it's fine and it's great, of course. I love that. <laughs> We've talked about how you almost never plan or paint specific landscapes, but we've also talked about how you're happy to reference, say, waterfalls. Are there specific things in the American, or non-American for that matter, landscape that you're conscious of using and putting in paintings? I don't think there's anything specific that I'm like, this is an American landscape. I need to put this in or like this feels like an American landscape. So I need so it so it's going in or coming out. Because there are a couple of times where that like, you know, in, in that San Francisco show, there's a painting like that seems to reference Monument Valley. And I'm drawing a blank on that. I think it's Wacko Wacko West. Oh, Wacko West. Yeah, that one feels pretty American. But it also feels like you're very specifically referencing a place, and that's Monument Valley. 
there, there are times in your paintings I've thought to myself, oh, that's El Capitan in Yosemite. And I don't know if you're intending to do that, if you wanted to reference Monument Valley or Yosemite or the Grand Canyon or... No, I mean, again, like I'm happy if people find places in them that make make it feel like a specific place, you know, but I, I guess like Wacko West, even like the colors feel very West and the background on it does as well, but... Maybe if it tend, if the painting tends to be leaning one way, I'll encourage it. But it it's never something that I'm specifically thinking of. Like, oh, I just went to El Capitan. Let me let me put this. Let me make a painting about that. It, the only really time that I've done a very specific painting place reference was to one of my paintings that was in the Whitney Biennial with all the trees. It's called Beautiful Truth. I, I own a tree farm in South Georgia that I used to grow up going down to, and I, st- I still go down to it. But I went down there recently and took a video of, like, the light going in between all the trees on the tree farm. And that was, like, really specifically about that place. But otherwise, none of the other ones really – I can't think of any that were really specific to, oh, I went on this trip, and now I'm going to make this one. There's, there's, or, or, or of course that you might've accessed through, through art history, because, you know, one of the things, it's interesting you brought up beautiful truth because that, that was one of the paintings I had up on my screen and it gets at the last art historical reference I was hoping to bring up. Um, you've also made a number of paintings that kind of reference fruit trees or fruit orchards or what look like flowering trees, paintings that remind me very much of, of early 20th century, you know, 19 aughts, um, early 1910s, Gustav Klimt's. And, and Beautiful Truth also reads like a Klimt pine forest. Are those Klimt paintings of interest to you, or is this all incidental? Oh, those paintings are incredible. I don't know if, like, specifically with this Beautiful Truth one, I was looking at that at all. That one happened, the Beautiful Truth kind of happened really fast, and because I know that space really well, I wasn't, I don't think I was looking at anybody for that. But I do look at those Klimt landscapes, and they're insane. They're incredible. Yeah, beautiful truth is totally a um, a fauve plus neo X Klimt pine forest, <laughs> and 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 you know I think those are, I think those Klimt pine forests are among the most underrated and important paintings of the twentieth century. I mean they're 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 flattening before, certainly before Picasso was thinking about flattening and before Brock was thinking about flattening, and they're probably because the dates of them are a little fuzzy. But they're probably a year or two before Matisse is thinking of flattening through fauvism too, and they're flat. Right. Yeah. No, they're incredible in that way. There's there's one painting actually that I feel like I made for a show I did at Rachel Upner around the same time as the Whitney that almost is more of a reference to those Klimt paintings. It's called Lost or Found, 2017, and it has like these birch trees in it and leave-ish type shapes all on the ground that feel almost more referential to Klimt. But I don't, again, I still don't even know if I was looking at him then or not, but it doesn't, you know, I feel like a lot of times people might say, of course you were, but you know, maybe I was, I don't remember, but if I was, that's a pretty good job at almost copying it. (laughs) (laughs) Artists, I mean, part of the, part of the fun of, of, Painting in particular, I mean, one of the things we love about painting is that artists work through ideas in ways that are often 
subconscious and and that's how you get 83 things thrown together that comes together and works as a single thing right yeah yeah exactly exactly i mean i get i get the hockney reference all the time and but then if you say what he i always say but he would not make he wouldn't come up with what i did because it's not the way he makes the paintings i can see obviously the reference that people always come to with that but he would never make my paintings Shara Hughes, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.